are listening to a Babel 2.0 podcast. This is drawn from our recent November 5th, 2022 conference day, Babel 2.0, Can Faith Survive Online? To which we invited three main speakers, the theologian Catherine Schmidt, author of Virtual Communion, who joined us in person, Nora Young, CBC radio host and creator of the program Spark, who came in virtually from Toronto, and Michael Corrin, writer, journalist, and Anglican priest, who also came in remotely from Toronto. We were delighted to have with us David Balzer, professor from Canadian Mennonite University, where the conference was held. He acted as our interlocutor, the one who would listen very carefully ask the first question, and then coordinate the Q&A sessions. Just a quick note as this session with Michael Corrin begins. This conference was all about exploring the way that the online world, the digital world, impacts the church. And we brought in Michael digitally, virtually, from Toronto. There were points along the way where the audio strength wasn't quite good enough. For the most part, it's just fine, and you can make out everything that he has to say. But there will come a point where I'm going to step in and explain the two minutes that had to be pulled out because the audio quality was just not there at all. And I'll give you a bit of a sense of of where he was going. And then a second spot in the question and answer where a piece had to be removed. But otherwise, you're getting here what everybody got at the conference that day. Hello, Michael. Good to have you with us. Hello. Michael Corrin is a columnist, author, and you might guess from the caller, an Anglican priest. He's the award-winning author of 18 books, translated into 12 languages, and five of them bestsellers. He writes regularly for the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, the Walrus, the New Statesman, the Church Times, among others. He's also a longtime television and radio host. And this is from his own material, married for 35 years. He and his wife have four children. I will add to that little bit that Michael's site provided that when it was first released in 1994, I gave my parents a hardcover copy of Michael's book, The Man Who Created Narnia, the story of C.S. Lewis. And that book is still prominently displayed on my mom's bookshelves. In fact, I borrowed it (laughs) on Thursday and read it Friday afternoon. He's also (laughs) written accessible biographies of Tolkien, Chesterton, among others, and alongside of that has written very thoughtfully on his own journey in the Christian tradition. His most recent book is The Rebel Christ, which was published just about a year ago now. So we welcome Michael Corrin. Thank you. Now, I'm not sure what the quality is. I'm in a little church office in Toronto, and um, this is ironic, the weather here is bad. 
Um, so usually we think about you having bad weather. Actually, I'm not in Toronto. I tell a lot. I'm in Burlington, just outside of Toronto. And uh, I've got a bit of a confession for you. Don't tell anybody, but uh, we have our uh, Niagara Darcy Synod today, and I left slightly early to be able to give this lecture. So if you do write to my bishop and tell her, I'll track you down. <laughs> now I'm going to have the lecture in front of me on the screen, so I'm not sure what the quality is of, of the picture and, and audio, but um, I'm going to speak around the issue, I suppose. I think you saw the premise of the, of the issue of what I was given, and I thought long and hard about it and prayed about it, and I've just written um, what I wrote some time ago, a very long piece, fairly long piece for the Warriors about being a priest during the pandemic, and that involved a bit of the electronic consequences. But um, the question I posed here, I think it was me who posed it, the church changes reluctantly, slowly and not always well. But COVID gave us no option and we were forced to embrace Zoom, social media and new electronic communication. Did we succeed? What happens now? And is the future church a new, a modern one? <laughs> or perhaps is it just to return to business as usual? It's a really good question. Uh, I'm not sure if I answer it particularly well, but let me begin with a story that maybe will indicate my frame of mind about many things when it comes to the church. A friend of mine some years ago now, he was a foreign correspondent and uh, he'd been in various parts of the world. And every time he became quite an authority about whether he was stationed as a foreign correspondent and journalist, they would move him somewhere else. Typical. And he was moved to the Middle East, stationed in Jerusalem but to cover the, the entire region. And he always did the same thing when he went to a, a new country, a new city. The first thing was to get into a cab, into a taxi, and to drive around, to give the, the guy a certain amount of money and say, just drive me around for an hour, I want to chat to you. Good thing to do. My dad was a cab driver in London, England. If you really want to know what goes on, speak to a cabbie. So he would do that, you know, tell me what it's really about, win the person's trust. And then he just walked around and spoke to ordinary people, not politicians or generals or anything like that, just ordinary people. And he went to the um, the Wailing Wall, the Kotel, the Western Wall, the only part that remains really of, of the temple, which was the supporting wall of the platform. It's really, I mean, it was absolutely huge, this thing. But it's known as the Wailing Wall. And he walked up and down and there was this elderly man curled up against the wall, Orthodox Jewish man, and he was curled up to the wall, but really sort of trying to almost become part of it. And my friend said to him, excuse me, do you speak English? And the man said, yeah, yeah, I speak English. And he said, could I ask you a couple of questions? And the fellow said, yes, yes, please. And he said, um, do you come here often? It's like a pickup line. Do you come here often? And the fellow said, I come here every day. I come here as the sun comes up and I stay here till the sun goes down. And my friend said, oh, and, and, and you pray? He said, yes, I pray. And he said, what, what do you pray for? He said, well, I always pray for the same thing. I pray that Israeli and Arab can live in peace and harmony. We can have a just solution to Israel-Palestine issue. People of all religions can just live in, in love and understanding. And my friend said to him, look, I don't, want to, I don't want to be cynical here, but I mean, it hasn't really worked out that well, has it? And the guy said, hasn't worked out well. Sometimes it's like I'm talking to a brick wall. <laughs> I can't hear you. I hope you're laughing. If you're not, 
sometimes it's like talking to a brick wall. It can be very difficult. Someone asked me yesterday, we're going through uh, First Peter, um, the roaring lions, and, and he said to me, what are the roaring lions for you? Injustice? And, and I said, well, yeah, they're the obvious ones, but you know, the roaring lion actually doesn't roar very, very much at all. It's indifference. It's indifference. I find that really difficult. I'd rather have hostility than indifference. But every time someone in the Christian world comes up with a wonderful new response to indifference, to speaking to a brick wall, to declining congregations, an aging church, youth indifference, crisis after crisis, we all know them, whatever our denomination, pretty much all of these solutions, they're not going to solve the problem. And when the solutions do seem helpful and creative, we tend to become that brick wall ourselves. Very difficult to accept new ideas. But here we're discussing COVID and the pandemic and its consequences. Well, it's not over yet. We're probably halfway through. But in terms of evangelism for the church, the future of the church. So let's give some background first. Now, just recently, the, the latest census from StatsCan showed that a third of Canadians had no religious affiliation. And the number who identify as secular or atheist has doubled in 20 years. Now, some people are leaving religions such as Islam and Hinduism, but generally the trend in those faiths, often fueled by immigration, of course, is growth rather than decline, meaning that the most significant reduction is within Christianity. 53% of the population now follow various churches. That's down from 67% in 2011 and a massive 77 percent in 2001. I'm not surprised and if you ask me to make a prediction I would say that in 20 years time the number will be even lower because I think a number of younger people certainly if they're raised Catholic may have said Catholic when asked their religion but they're not really it's more of a cultural spasm now so I think those numbers may actually be lower well, the devil, it said, ha has all the best tunes. And I don't know if that's actually true, but Beelzebub certainly has an exemplary public relations department. Because how else can we explain how appalling the Christian world often appears at times of crisis such as COVID? I mean, that, that was seldom as bitingly obvious as it was, still is really, during the COVID pandemic. Resistance to vaccinations led by conservative Christians, it was appalling. Now, the vast majority of churchgoers aren't, I, I believe, reactionary, and they fully embraced lockdowns, social distancing, vaccinations, but that can't obscure the reality of the situation. Right-wing Christian media platforms and websites, well, listen to their radio broadcasts, for example. Look who is protesting. It's the right-wing of the Christian church, and the paranoia and the anger is, is, is palpable, it's tangible. A poll that was taken two years ago by the U.S. Public Relig uh, Religion Research Institute found that 45% of white evangelicals said they would refuse the vaccine. And that seems to have been about accurate. That's how many did. Now, in Canada, the percentage is lower, but the problem remains and remained. Uh, you may remember the former uh, Conservative MP, Derek Sloan, Christian. He sponsored a petition before the House of Commons claiming, and I quote, Bypassing proper safety protocols means COVID-19 vaccination is effectively human experimentation. It received almost 50,000 signatures. 
Now, the opposition to vaccines was and is multifaceted. The most ideological, ideologically plausible, if still bizarre objection, came from those convinced that embryonic stem cells had been used in the development of manufacture. And in some cases, that may even have been true. Yet even the Vatican said that it was, quote, morally acceptable to receive a vaccination that has used cell lines derived from aborted fetuses due to the, quote, grave danger of the pandemic. Pope Francis is not popular with Catholic conservatives, and they looked to alternative leaders such as Cardinal Raymond Burke. And he said the virus, I'm quoting again, has been used by certain forces inimical to families and to the freedom of nations to advance their evil agenda. These forces tell us that we are now the subjects of the so-called Great Reset, the new normal, which is dictated to us by their manipulation of citizens and nations through ignorance and fear. That's the Cardinal. And that darling of the Catholic, the Catholic right, by the way, he actually got COVID at one point. And I shouldn't laugh, he, he was okay, but he, he was very ill. Other forms of Christian anti-vaccine hysteria, keep saying were and are, but it continues. I think it's been given a reboot right now, are drenched in this hidden agenda fantasy. Cons conspiracy theories about the state and about secularism and uh, eschatological mania. There's a global battle, they say, between a remnant of authentic Christians, Catholic or evangelical, and the godless forces of government, media and business. And COVID and the vaccine response to it are all part of the plan to control and dominate. There are myriad references to Masonic plots and the Illuminati, and sometimes, predictably and horribly, this bleeds into anti-Semitism. Not always, though. One of the loudest resistors to vaccinations is a nun called Mother Miriam, a Jewish convert to Roman Catholicism, with a very popular daily phone-in show in which she presents her mission to bring hope to, the, to a world that has lost its way. And part of that mission, apparently, is to argue that vaccines are not only unethical and immoral, but have been proven to be very dangerous. When these people use words like proof and proven, it doesn't actually mean proof and proven. So, COVID runs the Christian anti-vaccine narrative is either a hoax or, if it's real, is nothing more than a mild flu. And if the latter, it has been exploited by plotting governments and elites to close churches, remove freedom of religion, and impose vaccines. Donald Trump, you may have heard of him, always eager to echo fundamentalist rhetoric, said while still president, and I bet he'll run again, that some states had closed places of worship while allowing liquor stores and abortion clinics to stay open. But this is all the background and context here that we're talking about. The obsession with conspiracies isn't confined to Christian conservatives, of course, and it's typical of any subgroup that sees its place under threat by a world it can't accept or understand. And the consequences, as we know, can be fatal. But in the Christian context, it's tied in with the polemic of, of, of Armageddon, the end times, the notion that vaccines contain the mark of the beast, supposedly from the book of Revelation, where the Antichrist is said to tempt Christians to mark their bodies. It's a callow misreading of a deeply complex final book of the New Testament, which is often poetry and allegory and demands a non-literal approach. The problem is, literalism is at the broken heart of the Christian anti-vaccine theocrats. 
So mingled together, it's all a toxic antisocial mess with the true believers more determined than ever. Now this is what we face, and this is still the holding pattern, in what the non-Christian world sees. The loudest splashing is usually made in the shallowest end of the swimming pool. And these people, they do splash rather a lot. Thus, they're noticed by media, by people out there. And our job is to counter that. So how have we done during COVID? And now, regarding social media, Zoom, and so on. Well, let's be cheerful for a moment. Here's a great success story. And it involves a cat. Uh, we have a dog. We did have cats. We have a dog. But I'm not anti-cat. The Dean of Canterbury, Canterbury Cathedral, the Mother Church of the Anglican Communion, uh, he retired recently, unfortunately, wonderful man, Robert Willis. Now, Robert Willis became a viral sensation with his cat during lockdown. He broadcast daily online prayer videos from his cathedral garden. And Leo, the cat name, wandered into frame, tried to drink some cream, and then disappeared beneath the Dean's robe. But Dean Robert continued in good Anglican fashion. He barely even noticed and just continued. Later, another cat, Tiger, predictably, appeared. And in subsequent videos, other animals were shown as well. So, from morning prayer from Canterbury being said, and I mean, by the way, I've been to morning prayer at Canterbury Cathedral, and there's probably a dozen people. Morning prayer from the, the cathedral has now been seen by tens, no, by hundreds of thousands of people. And after news coverage, including CNN, oh, I mean, it could even be the millions of us, I don't know. Now, I'm not saying that all of those people suddenly embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I do wonder if it made them rethink the hard, angry faith so often presented by the modern church. And you see, we are fighting defensive We have a public image problem. And I've yet to meet a church PR person who has anything that helpful to say about presenting Jesus to the wider world. COVID gave us an opportunity due to desperation. Suddenly churches were closed and people couldn't come to listen to all of those scintillating, compelling, brilliant, witty sermons and homilies anymore. Yeah, that was a, a sort of joke. Uh, so we went into panic mode and we adopted Zoom. We adopted, now, Zoom is now old hat. There are so many other different programs now, but how many of you had actually heard of Zoom before the pandemic? I hadn't. And how did we do? Well, not that bad. I mean, in our case, the, the church, I, I'm at a different church now, but the church I was at, our first sessions were Zoom bombed repeatedly, usually by kids swearing, because they assumed Christians had never, ever heard anyone swearing before. Once we were Zoom bombed by a hardcore child sexual abuse imaging. And because the priest in charge at that point, didn't know how to end the meeting quickly. Those images remained on the screen, not for a long time, but for enough time to people to see them. And those things tend to stick in your mind. But here's the point I want to make. We have to use Zoom. We have to use social media. 
we have to use online church. We have to use it all more effectively. Now, here's a point where we had to pull out almost two minutes of audio because the quality simply wasn't there. In this section, what Michael said with real clarity is, I believe in God, but then went on to say, not the God of much of modernity, not the God who is sold in so many church contexts across North America, but instead the God of what at first glance seemed to be lost causes. And he turned us back to the gospel stories of Jesus in relation to those that that society had deemed among the lost and the least and the last and the dead. Now, we resume. As Freud once wrote, if we all got what we deserved, we'd all get a good whipping. Now, there are numerous arguments for the existence of God, most of them pretty pointless, as pointless as the arguments for the non-existence of God. But there's another way to approach all of this, one that I think we have to embrace online or not, but in this context, when we are presenting the Christian case electronically, on the internet, by Zoom, social media, whatever app we're using. The most central teaching of Christianity is a command of Jesus to love God and to love one's neighbor as oneself. With all your heart and all your strength and all your soul. Do we love ourselves? Do we believe in ourselves? This is an age when self-harm and depression are grimly common. Personal doubt is ubiquitous. And if we've fallen out with anyone, lost belief in a person, it's in us. We can't believe in God. We can't genuinely love God unless we believe in and love ourselves. Now, I want to be specific here. That doesn't mean self-regard and pomposity and pride and look at me. No, no, not that at all. But coming to terms with the preciousness of the broken and the sparkle of the needy. We're flawed. We get it wrong. We can be difficult to like. But until we come to respect ourselves and see our reflection in the divine, never properly love others and never properly love God. That, and not some arcane philosophical puzzle, is the foundation of belief. And that is something we can surely present electronically as well as in church, as, as well as anywhere else. In fact, I would argue, maybe even with more success online, there is a certain intimacy to the, the internet to the screen sometimes. It seems contradictory, but I think there is. Because if, if authentic Christianity is anything, it's the very contrary of virtual signaling. You, you're just being a virtual signaler. We get that on Twitter. You know, you ask for something good to happen. Oh, you're virtual signaling. It's a contemporary put down used promiscuously by reactionaries the world over. No, it's not about signaling a virtue. But actually, it's about the announcement of failure and fault. Remember, during the first Easter, those closest to Jesus were in despair. After the crucifixion, they cringed in hiding and cowardice, certain that it had all been a colossal defeat. They failed in love. 
they detested themselves. They abandoned what they had seen and heard. And as a consequence, during that dark hiatus, they also failed in belief. Imagine if there was Zoom in the first century. Imagine what they would have presented when they turned on Zoom and everybody came in for the meeting. What would they have said and done? Now, as a cleric, I see most aspects of human nature on a pretty much a daily basis. The pain of the human condition is sometimes difficult to witness, and I would never be so arrogant and crass as to offer religious platitudes to those in mud thick suffering. What I have discovered is that when people in such gruesome pain know the inner peace that comes from self-knowledge, yes, a form of love, they're more able and willing to forgive, accept, and believe. And I've seen this during COVID with Zoom services, with Zoom worship. One of the things I organized, uh, oh God, it's two years ago now, was an online service. No, not a service, an online meeting, gathering for people who had lost loved ones, a partner, sometimes a child. And you know what? We said things that would not have been said if we were meeting in person. We said things, we displayed emotion, we told inner truths that I don't think would have been, would have happened if we were meeting in person. So when those people out there lament Zoom and social media and electronic worship and communication and religiosity, let's be a little bit careful before we do that. I mean, I can question my behavior. I can blush. I often do at past actions. I know that I can be and can do better. I want to lead an improved life. But if I hate myself, I'm of no use to anybody. More than that, I can never come to know God in the way that God desires. True religion is an affair, a leap of romance, a reciprocal relationship. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And not mutually exclusive, but inseparable and codependent. And we can spread that love. And that self-regard and that acceptance of brokenness, often through the computer screen in a way we can't do in person. Now, the Christianity I embrace rests in that love for humanity. As much in a way as it does on a, in a belief in God, I'm part of that humanity. And if we dare remove the fleshy personal aspect of all this, then we slide from inclusion into judgment and from joy into hatred. The great conversation of love and belief continues and we should welcome all participants. And I think this is what I'm getting at. There is an ease to turn on a button. There is an availability to the screen. You probably know this as well as I do. There are people who now attend services sometimes on Zoom and they haven't got out in their pajamas yet. And that's fine with me. I don't care what you wear, probably wear something. But that's not the point. The point is being there. And if we are to evangelize, if we are to evangelize, the message we've got to carry through to this brave, 
and cowardly new Christian world of Zoom, camera, online presence, hybrid services, generation X, Y, Z, whatever, I can't keep up. It has to be the door is wide open. I don't know the technicalities and the numbers of what's going to happen in the future. I heard it discussed us earlier today. How many people will physically return? Hey, giving has gone down. Money, it matters. We don't want to think about it or talk about it. Of course it matters. We can't do all the things we do unless we get certain amounts of money. But that can be an issue. Of course it can. It's a practicality. But the main problem or one of the main problems with church for the longest time, I see it with our children, is that although the door may be unlocked, it seems locked to them. The door of the church never seems open. Our door's always open to you. And those churches, God give me strength, that say everybody welcome, when they actually mean only certain people are welcome. You know that. We all know that. But when it comes to bringing in people who would never otherwise go to church, and if they're tempted, will say to themselves, I just can't, no, I can't walk into that building. C.S. Lewis writes it beautifully about how the devil tempts people away from church. Just let him go and see the butcher or the baker from down the street and the squeaky shoes. And he doesn't really understand the, le the, the liturgy and, and let him feel superior and then see how long his faith. But there is a great opportunity in this great equality, this great egalitarianism of pressing the button and there you are. You can mute yourself and you can turn off the video and you can dance around the room and no one can see you. Although, of course, there are cases when you've forgotten to do that and you are seen. But everyone really is welcome because they feel it. They do not feel any stigma. And that, I believe, is something we have not exploited. And I hope I don't use exploit in an exploitative way. We haven't taken advantage of that of telling people you don't have to come into the building if you don't want to. We'd love you to, but you don't have to. Join us on Zoom. If you don't like us, leave. You don't want to show your face, don't show it. Just be there and listen. If we give the message that I outlined earlier, I believe they'll stay. Because the problem isn't and has never been Jesus. The problem is and has always been the church. I love my church. I love my denomination. Thank God for it. But institutions will always let you down. Institutions will fail. Jesus doesn't fail. Once the church was co-opted by the Roman Empire, once it became official, I believe it, it lost its way. This is not a panacea. Zoom, online worship is not a panacea. I've heard too many of those over the years from people in, in churches. There is not one. But it is a possibility. And as we move forward, forced by the horror of COVID and pandemic, a horrible thing, as we've been forced by this darkness to adopt a new way of conducting worship and community, out of that darkness, I believe something light can be produced. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen several times now during the peak and the height of the pandemic, less so now, I must admit. There were people who they felt alone and they were frightened and they had a certain spiritual feeling and maybe their parents had been churchgoers.
they would never go into a church building, but they joined us on Zoom. And they would chat to me in the chat room. They wouldn't turn their camera on. And they would just chat and say, could we meet? Could you recommend a book? Could you answer this question for me? That's pretty good evangelism. So in a way, I'm an optimist. Perhaps I've been forced into the optimism, screaming, but I still am an optimist. I think the numbers can grow. I think we're going to see changes that sometimes frighten us in conventional terms. But if our aim is to bring more people into the kingdom, to have more people understanding the, the real authentic teaching of the rebel Jesus, I see this not as a hindrance, but a great chance and opportunity. Thank you. Michael, I just wanted to introduce you to, uh, to David Balzer. Dave is on faculty here at Canadian Mennonite University, working primarily around questions of communication and technology and so on. And he's going to kind of anchor the conversation slash question and answer. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Michael. Thank you for being here and for engaging us. I want to just take the risk of summarizing a little bit of what I heard as a way of just bringing us into the conversation. And uh, just want to invite the, uh, the chat that you can uh, submit questions there. We will have that open. We have that open right now. So please uh, do that. And again, just a reminder that we'd love for you to come to the mic and ask questions there. So we're going to take questions, Michael, both from online, those that are joining us there, as well as here from the floor. So you'll, you'll have engagement from a variety of, of places. I'm going to, I'm going to, as I said, I'm going to risk the, 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 the quick, uh, just thumbnail sketch here. I was curious about the, the context you gave around particularly issues uh, around the vaccine and, and how people were engaging that. And, uh, I, I wrote down a few things like eschatological mania. That was uh, just a wonderful little quip there. Um, but I, I, if, I, I thought for the purposes of our conversation today, why are we talking about the vaccine? I wasn't questioning where you were going, Michael, but it struck me that part of the bigger question we're asking today has to do with what do we do with technology? This morning, we were speaking a little bit more directly, perhaps about social media and internet, but that bigger quest of what is the vaccine if not rooted in the use of a very particular kind of technology to solve a problem. And so our sensibilities around what we believe about how it's being used, to me, brings us right back into the conversation of, what are we as a faith community going to do in this, in the use of our technology? And so we see this incredible divide around a vaccine, but in my mind, it also points to something even deeper, like, is technology being used for conspiracy? Like, should I think in a conspiratorial kind of way about technology? Um, so I'm curious if that's, if I'm capturing a little bit of that sentiment. I know you won't go on there directly, but... It does feel like it's a technology question at the, at the heart of it. 
So that's kind of big idea number one. Secondly, this idea of a new kind of availability and accessibility that we have in our faith communities through technology that was kind of foisted upon us. And within that, the potential of authenticity, which maybe we haven't experienced in the same way, that kind of intimate vulnerability that Zoom gives us within our communities that is now accessible to a broader public. And then the third idea there I see is really, I think, as you were provoking us around, and what is the content? What is the message within that, that new accessibility in our communities? So if I broke it down, what do we think about technology? Do we recognize the potential of being more accessible than we have before? And now what is going to be the message within that? I'd like to start, uh, and the, we'll go to the open lines now, so to speak. Uh, Michael, if you could comment on a one-liner that has captured my attention in the past around this, and especially related to the, the new availability or accessibility of, of our communities. Uh, and the line is this, the only way to change culture is to make more of it. The only way to change culture is to make more of it. And I'm drawing this from, from an author that I enjoy. That has always captivated me, that we, if we want society to develop, if we want more people to be engaging the community, the way of doing that is by making more of what's already there. Uh, and I kind of hear you suggesting that. I, I'd love a, your, your reaction to that. I hear an embrace from you to say, embrace Zoom, embrace that accessibility, go there, use it. Because, I mean, to your original point about technology, part of the problem is, I mean, to sound a little bit crass, but the bad guys use technology better than the good guys. It's very interesting, and, and, and during COVID, and in terms of churches, and when I use good and bad, I mean, you know, please appreciate, I, I don't mean that in concrete terms, but it was the, the, the message, most people knew the vaccinations saved lives, they were helpful, they were good, they had a history of, they've changed the world. But then certain people in the Christian world managed to use technology, how else would they do it to communicate the message that actually this was a conspiracy? And they used mainly, they didn't have television shows to do that. They used alternative technology. They used internet, they used Zoom, they, they used podcasts and so on. When it comes to, the, the, was it the best way to preserve culture is to make more of it? I'm not sure how I would respond to that. Um, you know, there's culture and culture. I, I've got to, uh, as I get older, I, I'm increasingly impatient. And, you know, we have Netflix and we have Amazon Prime and they're already paid for. So I'll start watching a show and think, nope. Done 10 minutes, I'm not going to waste any more of my time on that. Uh, there, there's, we're probably producing more quality and more rubbish now than ever before. I mean, some of the stuff that's made for TV is outstanding, less so movies, I think. Some of the novels being written today are extraordinary, but my golly, the number that get published that are terrible, and the number of TV shows that are absolutely appalling. So more is not always better. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, if that's what it would, means, if I, if I fully agree with that. I mean, I've heard Anglican clergy 
I can think of one in particular, I would never say who it was, but this person said, oh, I, I, I don't, um, I don't do uh, the internet. And I thought, saying, how do I respond to that? And you don't have that option. You have to do it. I'm not saying you have to be on Twitter the way I am, probably way too much. I'm not saying you have to always be writing things on Facebook, but this is what it comes down to in terms of evangelism. It's not as though we're being offered hundreds and hundreds of different ways of communicating the message. Any way we can communicate the Christian message has to be used. And what we have now is a massively increased awareness of things like Zoom. I use it in a generic way. I mean, there are other platforms too. What we hardly knew about just a few years ago, we now use routinely. You know, occasionally we'd call, speak to a relative or friend on, uh, on Skype, but things have changed. Tomorrow morning, I am going on a, a, a station in the UK called GB News, and it's way too conservative for me. It has a lot of money behind it, some major names and players who are on it. And they asked if I would go on as the token progressive Christian and argue against the conservative government's views on immigration. We have a conservative government in Britain that is using words like invasion to describe migrants and creating a terrible situation. And I thought to myself, You've got to say yes, Mike, because first of all, they might not get anyone else to do it, but also you can. I can sit in the church tomorrow morning before the service and on this laptop, I can defend what I think is a valid Christian position against people who believe that it's entirely appropriate to, to, to really you know, paint migrants and refugees as being criminal by nature. I can defend what I, I think is, is the Christian teaching. So. I thought you have to take advantage of that. I mean, they may all jump on you, but so what? You've got to take advantage of it. So any tool that is there that we can use, we simply have we have to use it. And there are many books published, and they do some good. You know, some of us write columns, and they do some good. You every now and again you have something like Alpha, which is an extraordinary success. But otherwise, the general trend is, as I mentioned very early on, indifference. People just don't care, and that's a real problem. I'm going to go to the um, to the online questions here, and I have several from Wayne, uh, and this is to you, Michael. Among your colleagues, what is the sense that the local church has the means and willingness to embrace the future? Uh, and then uh, Wayne goes on. I think Churchill said, "Never waste a good crisis." <laughs> and if he didn't, he should have. Um, it's a very, very good question. I, I would, um, I, I, I pay for a, an expert in new technology to be in every diocese, if not uh, two or three of them. I think they're almost more important than clergy now. What we did find, I, I don't know about you guys, but um, we had a lot of technical errors uh, at the beginning, but even in the middle, we would sometimes services that simply wouldn't appear and some, sometimes some fairly basic stuff. People were trying their best. They just didn't know how to do it properly. We, we need to be masters of this. And that generally means younger people. I mean, you, you know what it's like. I mean, I, I need my phone fixing. I can't do it. I go to one of the kids. They do it for me. I'm, I mean, I know that sounds an old joke, but it's true. Younger people simply know this stuff. Um, so you, you need younger people who can do this very easily. I mean, we, there are people who are aware of the opportunities. Um, but I, 
I wouldn't say they were the majority because a lot of clergy are older people and they're lovely people, but they are older people. And sometimes they can be a bit nervous of the wider world. A couple of years ago, I probably shouldn't say this, but a couple of years ago, I had columns on Christmas Eve in both the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail, which you shouldn't really do. The Globe didn't mind so much, but the Star were a bit, Mike, don't don't let that happen again. You know, it, it just happened to be what the Globe changed the day it was put. But so in the two national newspapers, a church, an Anglican priest had columns in about the meaning of Christmas, you know, very different columns. I don't think I heard from anybody in authority to say, well done. Now, you know, I'm being paid to do a job, but it would have been nice to hear, well done, that's pretty impressive. We talk a lot about using traditional media, let alone new media, but do we really do it? Like I, I write for the Church Times uh, in the UK a bit. It's a really good newspaper. Look at look at Christian newspapers in, in Canada. I mean, Let's be honest here. They're, they're not. I can't think of any that are very good. Um, we need to communicate them. We, we need to understand how people's minds are changed. And also when it comes to mainstream TV, I don't appear very often these days sometimes, but I used to appear quite a bit on the CBC. And I never found people were resistant to Christianity. They were resistant to people using Christianity to express very conservative views on issues such as women's rights and sexuality. But they weren't opposed to someone giving a Christian point of view. On the contrary, and I pretty much, I just did an interview with CBC kids, of all things, about the meaning of Christmas. They were delightful. And this young man, he's about 14 or 15, he was lovely, who interviewed me for it. It was, they didn't say, don't mention Jesus, not at all. So, there's no big conspiracy against Christianity. It's more of a level playing field now. It's a bit like the early church. We can no longer sit back and say, you will, of course, know that biblical reference and you will have been to church. And no, they haven't. That's fine with me. Now we have to, in a very loving way, often just by witness and example, show people what the Christian message is. I think that's very exciting because we have a lot to answer for the church. It's not just residential schools. There are so many issues where we have got it so horribly wrong. So maybe now we're given a bit of a chance to do something better. Let's go to the floor and then we'll come back to uh, to our online questions. So we've, uh, I guess when other people have come up, uh, we've talked a bit about like positionality. Um, and I'm going to speak from like my position. Um, I am a, I'm queer and I'm Anglican. Um, and I also spend way too much time on Twitter. <laughs> I love uh, you. <laughs> when I when I come to these sort of conversations, um, I think of like my experience and the experience of my broader broader community, which is uh, queer Christians have found our place in the nooks and crannies of the internet. Um, if you grew up in you know rural Virginia, you probably don't have a church that you can go to in your hometown. Or, or wherever. Um, and when I think of what you're saying in terms of um, uh, the Great Commission and how can we as a church um, kind of go where people are, I think about, you know, maybe the question, 
how do we as a church use technology is such a big, overwhelming, complicated question. You know, most people don't know how to do this and that, and it's blinky lights and it's complicated. Maybe the question, maybe a way of phrasing this is, um, how can we as the church make our way into those nooks and crannies of the world? And maybe that's kind of what the early church was doing, was making their way into the nooks and crannies of first century Palestine. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm not really asking a question. I'm more so just framing something based on my experience yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and seeing how, if you have anything to add to that, if that's... Now, after this question, there's a period of just about 20 seconds that had to be pulled out simply because there was feedback the, the the connection between what was being said in the room and what was being said online blurred just one of those things in essence what michael had to say to this young person who spoke boldly was that he was delighted to hear that perspective and then it continues I think you're right. You know, we, we don't always see ourselves as replicas, but if you think of the early church and and it faced genuine persecution, not the pretend persecution that some Christians claim today. Um, and it's always more conservative Christians who say we're being persecuted, which I've never understood. What they mean is they, they can't just wish someone happy Christmas. I don't, I don't know what they think half the time. But it's finding whatever way is possible, by, by any means possible, to spread the good news and one of those being offered to us now is is new technology and when we say new technology I mean, you're very young uh i'm 63 i'm I'm as, I'm as old as anything um new technology in 10 years we won't even remember what we have now uh i computers i'm of the age of computers i remember the first computer i bought you should have seen this thing and how slow it was dial up internet and fax machines and and so on and when i this thing like this mat air i have in front of me now before long it's going to be quite incredible what what is available to us and we have to as christians be able to take advantage of that and and we don't because we are we are, even when we're socially progressive and economically radical, we are still actually quite conservative as institutions because we're institutions. And I believe in institutions, but I mean, I have real problems with mega churches because um, as we're seeing, we see all the time, it tends to be, it easily be problematic. But institutions by their nature tend to conserve, not in an, uh, to be cruel or malicious, but it's just part of, of their DNA to conserve. And they, they have to be open to change and it can be frightening and it is frightening sometimes though i find people who are really getting on in years who are the most radical on on, on certain things and they have the you know that they might need some help with it but they they really want to embrace the change um but it, you, you're quite right and your community in particular do you know a man called mark oakley in the uk um I recommend anything by him. He's the Dean of St. John's Cambridge now. Okay. Um, gay man, dear friend of mine, and um, took a long time for him to come out because he knew what would happen. He knew that, what, that he would never be made a bishop at that point, although I, I think he will be now. Somewhere. But he was given great support by people on social media. And you know what it's like. You can feel very alone sometimes. I felt that as a... As a, as a 63 year old straight white man sometimes 
I mean, some of the things that are said about me on Twitter and just the abuse, and I've got a pretty thick skin, and I never show that I've been hurt, but there are times when I think, oh, when's it going to stop? And then someone will DM you and say, you really changed my life. And it's worth a thousand of those nutters out there. You know, I just, I don't care what they have to say. So yes, use everything at our disposal, every single thing. Nothing wrong in that. It's all, everything good is given by God. Use it. I'm going to go to our, our next online question here from Donald. How does one avoid a, quote, salad bar faith when one uses social media and the metaverse? And how does one build a sense of, quote, truth or discernment to the competing Christian stories? Oh, that's a good one. You see, the, the, um, when I was in the Catholic Church, I heard the term cafeteria Catholic quite a lot which is rather out because you're sitting in a cafeteria, I just realized. <laughs> but that was used by conservatives to dismiss more liberal people who said, you pick and choose what you want to believe. But ironically, I think it was the conservatives who tended to pick and choose what they wanted to believe. So when it came to things like sell everything and give it to the poor and open all the barriers and doors and borders, uh, and equality and redistribution and turn the world upside down, that they didn't like so much. But when they could find something that seemed to support their conservatism, that's what they had to believe in. There will always be competing truths. There always have been. St. Paul is the great model for the world of competing truths. He went into environments where, I mean, his ideas were thought to be bizarre. That's, it's good. We have to know, as St. Paul wrote, we have to know how to defend our position. Uh, within Christianity, I mean, I really couldn't give a fig um, what, what someone's denomination is. Um, I'd rather everybody was Anglican, but that's, <laughs> but then, I mean, seriously, I, I, it's, my wife's Catholic. Uh, I'm Anglican. Uh, I have a son who uh, converted to Judaism to marry a Jewish girl in the U.S. Um, what do we have in common? Um, love. But different Christian viewpoints. Um, when Christianity goes right, I mean, correct, whatever the individual belief, it's very similar. Catholics who are more progressive, mainstream Protestants, Anglican, United, Lutheran, Presbyterian, an increasingly powerful progressive evangelical church. My golly, you could throw, throw one small blanket over all. I mean, we have a lot in common, so much more in common than we have that, that, that separates us. And I find that very, very encouraging. Uh, so I don't worry too much about that. Um, people often ask me for books. You know, well, is there any book that you should read, that they should read when they're interested in Christianity? Because a lot of people who come to me have no foundation in Christianity at all. And of course, I'd like to say to them all, The Rebel Christ by Michael Coram, but even I don't do that. Well, maybe I imply it. But the book I recommend, and I'd love them to read C.S. Lewis, and I'd love them to read Ron Williams and, and N.T. Wright and so on. But the book I recommend, and he doesn't need me to promote him, he's very successful, but it, it's a man who was a friend of mine. He was a pop star, and he's just retired as a Church of England priest, and his name is Richard Coles, C-O-L-E-S, Richard Coles. And if you were a Brit, you'd have heard of him. He's a bit of a national treasure there now. Uh, but he was, um, he's the only Anglican vicar to have had a number one hit single. 
and it was the biggest selling single of 1986, I think. It was Don't Leave Me This Way by the Communards. And Richard was one half of the Communards. And he's a gay man who was anti-Christian, atheist, went through the whole, the, the very heart of the AIDS crisis. Um, and his journey to faith, he, he's written two volumes of, well, three volumes of memoir, really. But the first one is called Fathomless Richards, Fathomless Richards. And most of it is about growing up, his sexuality, pop stardom, drug use. But the last third is about his journey towards the Christian faith. And it's wonderful. And Salabar, well, here's someone who, when he came, a friend of his said to him, oh, I hear you're going back to university. What are you going to study? And Richard said, theology, geology, theology, geology, theology. What? The guy just could not understand that he was going to study theology. And you can imagine the gay community of that time that saw the church as the enemy. How could you do this to us? But it describes his journey and, and the salad bar because Roman Catholicism, high Anglican, mid-level Anglicanism. And it's a beautiful introduction to what Christianity really means. And he tells a story, and I, I've told it a few times in homilies. I mean, I always attribute it to him. But it's about, um, I think it does tie into what we're talking about, expectation. But a young gay man in a, living in a fairly remote area in Britain before AIDS was really known. I mean, some of you will remember if you're my age. At the beginning, certainly in Britain, it was some American thing that was happening and people didn't even believe it was real. I mean, in the gay community, they said, how can, how can there be something that targets gay men? This is ludicrous. Anyway, someone said to him, you know, you should be tested. And he said, no. And they said, you should. You should, just in case. And he was tested. And you probably know what I'm going to say. He, he was he had AIDS. And this was a time when AIDS was a death sentence, like today, where you can survive, thank God. And not only a death sentence, he would die alone and despised. These were the, uh, the lepers of the era. They were, it, was, it was their own fault. And he would die in agony, probably alone. And uh, one night he got on his motorbike and he um, he drove off. I think he was, was he drunk? I'm not sure. Anyway, he just didn't care. And um, he hit either a tree or a wall. And um, he realized he wasn't dead, but he was bleeding profusely. And sirens and lights and, and this angelic looking figure, it was a police officer in a high visibility vest, you know, shining in the dark came up to him and this young man said, you've got to know, you must know, because there was blood everywhere. I've got AIDS. And the cop, and this was the police under Margaret Thatcher, when the police and the gay community were, I mean, <laughs> and this cop knelt down in the blood, cradled this man in his arms and said, and you've got to know, someone loves you. So, salad bar, uh, it's all really healthy. And uh, once we start digging, I think we find the gospel truth pretty quickly. I think we have time for one more question, and I'll go to online here. Matthew asks, hi, I'm writing in Toronto for the Anglican Journal, so I assume this response will be on the record, uh, Michael. Um, <laughs> You mentioned, and he says, you mentioned Christian image problems. Any thoughts on unique challenges to reach indigenous communities online 
in light of res school legacy, poor internet access on many reserves. And we have about two, two minutes for your response uh, thereabouts. I don't even need that. The answer is I am unqualified to answer and I wouldn't dream of, of having the chutzpah to even attempt that. I simply, I'm a Brit who's lived in this country 35 years, but all I can do when it comes to the residential school issue is to hold my head in shame. I simply don't feel qualified. There are all sorts of things I can say, you know what, I've been there. I've got some experience. I can talk about this. I've seen a lot, but on this issue, I honestly don't think it will be fair for me to comment. Thank you, Michael, for uh, joining us in this way. And uh, we will bid you farewell with a round of applause, which hopefully you'll hear. <laughs> You've been listening to one in this short series of podcasts drawn from our conference day held on November 5th, 2022. We're delighted you could be with us in this way. I should also add that the music featured in these podcasts comes to us courtesy of Steve Bell. In this case, it's from the Landscapes Disc, a collection of instrumental versions of the songs that he normally performs in concert with vocals. The song is Come to Me. We appreciate that Steve and Signpost Music give us permission to use these songs in our podcasts and, of course, this was the disc that was playing in the background at the conference day itself, so most appropriate to be using it here. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.